Chapter Fourteen of the Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Widening Circle. Maggie's people, the Schofields, lived in the large gardener's cottage that was half a farm behind Bellcote Hall. The hall was too damp to live in, so the Schofields were caretakers, gamekeepers, farmers, all in one. The father was gamekeeper and stock breeder, the eldest son was market gardener, using the big hall gardens, the second son was farmer and gardener. There was a large family, as at Cotterday. Ursula loved to stay at Belcote, to be treated as a grand lady by Maggie's brothers. They were good-looking men. The eldest was twenty-six years old. He was the gardener, a man not very tall, but strong and well-made, with brown, sunny, easy eyes, and a face handsomely hewn, brown, with a long, fair moustache, which he pulled as he talked to Ursula. The girl was excited because these men attended to her when she came near. She could make their eyes light up and quiver. She could make Antony, the eldest, twist and twist his moustache. She knew she could move them almost at will, with her light laughter and chatter. They loved her ideas, watched her as she talked vehemently about politics or economics. And she, while she talked, saw the golden-brown eyes of Antony gleam like the eyes of a satyr as they watched her. He did not listen to her words, he listened to her. It excited her. He was like a fawn, pleased when she would go with him over his hothouses, to look at the green and pretty plants, at the pink primulas nodding among their leaves, and cenarias flaunting purple and crimson and white. She asked about everything, and he told her very exactly and minutely, in a queer pedantic way that made her want to laugh. Yet she was really interested in what he did. And he had a curious light in his face, like the light in the eyes of the goat that was tethered by the farmyard gate. She went down with him into the warmish cellar, where already in the darkness the little yellow knobs of rhubarb were coming. He held the lantern down to the dark earth. She saw the tiny knob-end of the rhubarb thrusting upwards upon the thick red stem, thrusting itself like a knob of flame through the soft soil. His face was turned up to her, the light glittered on his eyes and his teeth as he laughed, with a faint, musical neigh. He looked handsome, and she heard a new sound in her ears, the faintly musical, neighing laugh of Antony, whose moustache twisted up, and whose eyes were luminous with a cold, steady, arrogant laughing glare. There seemed a little prance of triumph in his movement. She could not rid herself of a movement of acquiescence, a touch of acceptance. Yet he was so humble, his voice was so caressing. He held his hand for her to step on when she must climb a wall, and she stepped on the living firmness of him that quivered firmly under her weight. She was aware of him as if in a mesmeric state. In her ordinary sense she had nothing to do with him, but the peculiar ease and unnoticeableness of his entering the house, the power of his cold, gleaming light on her when he looked at her, was like a bewitchment. In his eyes, as in the pale grey eyes of a goat, there seemed some of that steady, hard fire of moonlight, which has nothing to do with the day. It made her alert, and yet her mind went out like an extinguished thing. She was all senses, all her senses were alive. Then she saw him on Sunday, 
dressed up in Sunday clothes, trying to impress her, and he looked ridiculous. She clung to the ridiculous effect of his stiff Sunday clothes. She was always conscious of some unfaithfulness to Maggie on Antony's score. Poor Maggie stood apart as if betrayed. Maggie and Antony were enemies by instinct. Ursula had to go back to her friend, brimming with affection and a poignancy of pity, which Maggie received with a little stiffness. Then poetry and books and learning took the place of Antony, with his goat's movements and his cold, gleaming humour. While Ursula was at Belcote, the snow fell. In the morning a covering of snow weighed on the rhododendron bushes. "'Shall we go out?' said Maggie. She had lost some of her leader's sureness, and was now tentative, a little in reserve from her friend. They took the key of the gate and wandered into the park. It was a white world on which dark trees and tree masses stood under a sky keen with frost. The two girls went past the hall that was shuttered and silent, their footprints marking the snow on the drive. Down the park, a long way off, a man was carrying armfuls of hay across the snow. He was a small, dark figure, like an animal moving in its unawareness. Ursula and Maggie went on exploring, down to a tinkling, chilly brook that had worn the snow away in little scoops and ran dark between. They saw a robin glance its bright eyes and burst, scarlet and grey, into the hedge. Then some pertly marked blue tits scuffled. Meanwhile the brook slid on coldly, chuckling to itself. The girls wandered across the snowy grass to where the artificial fish-ponds lay, under thin ice. There was a big tree with a thick trunk, twisted with ivy, that hung almost horizontal over the ponds. Ursula climbed joyfully into this, and sat amid bosses of bright ivy and dull berries. Some ivy leaves were like green spears held out, and tipped with snow. The ice was seen beneath them. Maggie took out a book and sitting lower down the trunk began to read Coleridge's Christabel. Ursula half listened. She was wildly thrilled. Then she saw Antony coming across the snow, with his confident, slightly strutting stride. His face looked brown and hard against the snow, smiling with a sort of tense confidence. "'Hello!' she called to him. A response went over his face. His head was lifted in an answering, jerking gesture. "'Hello!' he said. "'You're like a bird in there.' And Ursula's laugh rang out. She answered to the peculiar, reedy twang in his penetrating voice. She did not think of Antony, yet she lived in a sort of connection with him, in his world. One evening she met him as she was coming down the lane, and they walked side by side. "'I think it's so lovely here,' she cried. "'Do you?' he said. "'I'm glad you like it.' There was a curious confidence in his voice. "'Oh, I love it. "'What more does one want than to live in this beautiful place "'and make things grow in your garden? "'It's like the Garden of Eden.' "'Is it?' he said with a little laugh. "'Yes, well, it's not so bad.' "'He was hesitating. "'The pale gleam was strong in his eyes. "'He was looking at her steadily, watching her as an animal might. "'Something leaped in her soul. "'She knew he was going to suggest to her that she should be as he was.' "'Would you like to stay here with me?' he asked tentatively. She blenched with fear, and with the intense sensation of proffered license suggested to her. They had come to the gate. "'How?' she asked. 
You aren't alone here.' "'We could marry,' he answered, in the strange, coldly gleaming, insinuating tone that chilled the sunshine into moonlight. All substantial things seemed transformed. Shadows and dancing moonlight were real, and all cold, inhuman, gleaming sensations. She realised with something like terror that she was going to accept this. She was going inevitably to accept him. His hand was reaching out to the gate before them. She stood still. His flesh was hard and brown and final. She seemed to be in the grip of some insult. "'I couldn't,' she answered, involuntarily. He gave the same brief, neighing little laugh, very sad and bitter now, and slotted back the bar of the gate. Yet he did not open. For a moment they both stood looking at the fire of sunset that quivered among the purple twigs of the trees. She saw his brown, hard, well-hewn face gleaming with anger and humiliation and submission. He was an animal that knows that it is subdued. Her heart flamed with sensation of him, of the fascinating thing he offered her, and with sorrow, and with an inconsolable sense of loneliness. Her soul was an infant crying in the night. He had no soul. Oh, and why had she? He was the cleaner. She turned away. She turned round from him, and saw the east flushed, strangely rose, the moon coming yellow and lovely upon a rosy sky above the darkening, bluish snow. All this so beautiful, all this so lovely. He did not see it. He was one with it. But she saw it and was one with it. Her seeing separated them infinitely. They went on in silence down the path, following their different fates. The trees grew darker and darker, the snow made only a dimness in an unreal world. And, like a shadow, the day had gone into a faintly luminous, snowy evening. While she was talking aimlessly to him, to keep him at a distance, yet to keep him near her, and he walked heavily. He opened the garden gate for her quietly, and she was entering into her own pleasances, leaving him outside the gate. Then, even whilst she was escaping, or trying to escape, this feeling of pain, came Maggie the next day, saying, "'I wouldn't make Antony love you, Ursula, if you don't want him. It is not nice.' "'But, Maggie, I never made him love me,' cried Ursula, dismayed and suffering, and feeling as if she had done something base. She liked Antony, though. All her life, at intervals, she returned to the thought of him and of that which he offered. But she was a traveller. She was a traveller on the face of the earth, and he was an isolated creature living in the fulfilment of his own senses. She could not help it that she was a traveller. She knew Antony that he was not one. But, oh, ultimately and finally, she must go on and on, seeking the goal that she knew she did draw nearer to. She was wearing away her second and last cycle at St. Philip's. As the months went, she ticked them off, first October, then November, December, January. She was careful always to subtract a month from the remainder, for the summer holidays. She saw herself travelling round a circle, only an arc of which remained to complete. Then she was in the open, like a bird tossed into mid-air, a bird that had learned in some measure to fly. There was college ahead, that was her mid-air, unknown, spacious. 
Come college, and she would have broken from the confines of all the life she had known. For her father was also going to move. They were all going to leave Cossethay. Brangwen had kept his carelessness about his circumstances. He knew his work in the lace designing meant little to him, personally. He just earned his wage by it. He did not know what meant much to him. Living close to Anna Brangwen, his mind was always suffused through with physical heat. He moved from instinct to instinct, groping, always groping on. When it was suggested to him that he might apply for one of the posts as handwork instructor, posts about to be created by the Nottingham Education Committee, it was as if a space had been given to him into which he could remove from his hot, dusky enclosure. He sent in his application, confidently, expectantly. He had a sort of belief in his supernatural fate. The inevitable weariness of his daily work had stiffened some of his muscles, and made a slight deadness in his ruddy, alert face. Now he might escape. He was full of the new possibilities, and his wife was acquiescent. She was willing now to have a change. She too was tired of Cossethay. The house was too small for the growing children, and since she was nearly forty years old, she began to come awake from her sleep of motherhood. Her energy moved more outwards. The din of growing lives roused her from her apathy. She too must have her hand in making life. She was quite ready to move, taking all her brood. It would be better now if she transplanted them, for she had borne her last child, it would be growing up. So that in her easy, unused fashion she talked plans and arrangements with her husband, indifferent really as to the method of the change, since a change was coming. Even if it did not come in this way, it would come in another. The house was full of ferment. Ursula was wild with excitement. At last her father was going to be something, socially. So long he had been a social cipher, without form or standing. Now he was going to be art and handwork instructor for the county of Nottingham. That was really a status. It was a position. He would be a specialist in his way. And he was an uncommon man. Ursula felt they were all getting a foothold at last. He was coming to his own. Who else that she knew could turn out from his own fingers the beautiful things her father could produce? She felt he was certain of this new job. They would move. They would leave this cottage at Cossethay, which had grown too small for them. They would leave Cossethay, where the children had all been born, and where they were always kept to the same measure. For the people who had known them as children, along with the other village boys and girls, would never, could never understand that they should grow up different. They had held Ertler Brangwen one of themselves, and had given her her place in her native village, as in a family, and the bond was strong. But now, when she was growing to something beyond what Cossethay would allow or understand, the bond between her and her old associates was becoming a bondage. "'Hello, Ursula. How are you going on?' they said, when they met her. And it demanded of her in the old voice, the old response. And something in her must respond and belong to people who knew her. But something else denied bitterly. What was true of her ten years ago was not true now and something else which she was, and must be, they could neither see nor allow. They felt it there, nevertheless, something beyond them, and they were injured. They said she was proud and conceited, that she was too big for her shoes nowadays. They said she needn't pretend because they knew what she was, 
They had known her since she was born. They quoted this and that about her. And she was ashamed because she did feel different from the people she had lived amongst. It hurt her that she could not be at her ease with them any more. And yet, and yet, one's kite will rise on the wind as far as ever one has string to let it go. It tugs and tugs and will go, and one is glad the further it goes, even if everybody else is nasty about it. So Cossette hampered her, and she wanted to go away, to be free to fly her kite as high as she liked. She wanted to go away, to be free to stand straight up to her own height. So that when she knew that her father had the new post, and that the family would move, she felt like skipping on the face of the earth and making psalms of joy. The old bound shell of Cossette was to be cast off, and she was to dance away into the blue air. She wanted to dance and sing. She made dreams of the new place she would live in, where stately, cultured people of high feeling would be friends with her, and she would live with the noble in the land, moving to a large freedom of feeling. She dreamed of a rich, proud, simple girlfriend who had never known Mr. Harby and his like, nor ever had a note in her voice of bondaged contempt and fear, as Maggie had. And she gave herself to all that she loved in Cossette passionately, because she was going away now. She wandered about to her favourite spots. There was a place where she went trespassing to find the snowdrops that grew wild. It was evening, and the winter-darkened meadows were full of mystery. When she came to the woods, an oak tree had been newly chopped down in the dell. Pale drops of flowers glimmered many under the hazels, and by the sharp golden splinters of wood that were splashed about, the grey-green blades of snowdrop leaves pricked unheeding. The drooping still little flowers were without heed. Ursula picked some lovingly, in an ecstasy. The golden chips of wood shone yellow, like sunlight. The snowdrops in the twilight were like the first stars of night. And she, alone amongst them, was wildly happy to have found her way into such a glimmering dusk, to the intimate little flowers, and the splash of wood-chips like sunshine over the twilight of the ground. She sat down on the felled tree, and remained a while remote. Going home, she left the purplish dark of the trees for the open lane, where the puddles shone long and jewel-like in the ruts. The land about her was darkened, and the sky a jewel overhead. Oh! How amazing it was to her! It was almost too much. She wanted to run and sing and cry out for very wildness and poignancy, but she could not run and sing and cry out in such a way as to cry out the deep things in her heart, so she was still, and almost sad with loneliness. At Easter she went again to Maggie's home for a few days. She was, however, shy and fugitive. She saw Antony, how suggestive he was to look on, and how his eyes had a sort of supplicating light that was rather beautiful. She looked at him, and she looked again for him to become real to her. But it was her own self that was occupied elsewhere. She seemed to have some other being. And she turned to spring and the opening buds. There was a large pear-tree by a wall, and it was full, thronged with tiny, grey-green buds, myriads. She stood before it arrested with delight, and a realisation went deep into her heart. There was so great a host in array behind the cloud of pale, dim green, so much to come forth. 
so much sunshine to pour down. So the weeks passed on, trance-like and pregnant. The pear-tree at Cossetay burst into bloom against the cottage end, like a wave burst into foam. Then gradually the bluebells came, blue as water standing thin in the level places under the trees and bushes, flowing in more and more, till there was a flood of azure, and pale green leaves burning, and tiny birds with fiery little song and flight. Then swiftly the flood sank and was gone, and it was summer. There was to be no going to the seaside for a holiday. The holiday was the removal from Cossetay. They were going to live near Willy Green, which place was most central for Brangwen. It was an old, quiet village on the edge of the thronged colliery district, so that it served, in its quaintness of odd old cottages lingering in their sunny gardens, as a sort of bower or plaisance to the sprawling colliery townlet of Beldover, a pleasant walk-round for the colliers on Sunday morning, before the public houses opened. In Willy Green stood the grammar school where Brangwen was occupied for two days during the week, and where experiments in education were being carried on. Ursula wanted to live in Willy Green on the remoter side, towards Southwell and Sherwood Forest. There it was so lovely and romantic. But out into the world meant out into the world. Will Brangwen must become modern. He bought, with his wife's money, a fairly large house in the new red-brick part of Beldover. It was a villa built by the widow of the late colliery manager, and stood in a quiet, new little side-street near the large church. Ursula was rather sad. Instead of having arrived at distinction, they had come to new red-brick suburbia in a grimy, small town. Mrs. Brangwen was happy. The rooms were splendidly large, a splendid dining-room, drawing-room and kitchen, besides a very pleasant study downstairs. Everything was admirably appointed. The widow had settled herself in lavishly. She was a native of Beldover, and had intended to reign almost queen. Her bathroom was white and silver, her stairs were of oak, her chimney-pieces were massive and oaken, with bulging columnar supports. Good and substantial, was the keynote, but Ursula resented the stout, inflated prosperity implied everywhere. She made her father promise to chisel down the bulging, oaken chimney-pieces, chisel them flat. That sort of important paunch was very distasteful to her. Her father was himself long and loosely built. What had he to do with so much good and substantial importance? They bought a fair amount also of the widow's furniture. It was in common good taste, the great Wilton carpet, the large round table, the Chesterfield covered with glossy chintz in roses and birds. It was all really very sunny and nice, with large windows, and a view right across the Shadow Valley. After all, they would be, as one of their acquaintances said, among the elite of Beldover. They would represent culture. And as there was no one of higher social importance than the doctors, the colliery managers, and the chemists, they would shine with their Della Rubia, beautiful Madonna, their lovely reliefs from Donatello, their reproductions from Botticelli, nay, the large photographs of the Primavera and the Aphrodite and the Nativity in the dining-room, the ordinary reception-room, would make dumb the mouth of Beldover. 
and after all it is better to be princess in Beldover than a vulgar nobody in the country. There was great preparation made for the removal of the whole Brangwen family, ten in all. The house in Beldover was prepared, the house in Cossetay was dismantled. Come the end of the school term, the removal would begin. Ursula left school at the end of July, when the summer holiday commenced. The morning outside was bright and sunny, and the freedom got inside the schoolroom this last day. It was as if the walls of the school were going to melt away. Already they seemed shadowy and unreal. It was breaking up morning. Soon scholars and teachers would be outside, each going his own way. The irons were struck off, the sentence was expired. The prison was a momentary shadow halting about them. The children were carrying away books and inkwell, and rolling up maps. All their faces were bright with gladness and goodwill. There was a bustle of cleaning and clearing away all marks of this last term of imprisonment. They were all breaking free. Busily, eagerly, Ursula made up her totals of attendances in the register. With pride she wrote down the thousands, to so many thousands of children she had given another session's lessons. It looked tremendous. The excited hours passed slowly in suspense. Then at last it was over. For the last time she stood before her children whilst they said their prayers and sang a hymn. Then it was over. "'Good-bye, children,' she said. "'I shall not forget you, and you must not forget me.' "'No, miss,' cried the children in chorus, with shining faces. She stood smiling on them, moved, as they filed out. Then she gave her monitors their term sixpences, and they too departed. Cupboards were locked, blackboards washed, inkwells and dusters removed. The place stood bare and vacated. She had triumphed over it. It was a shell now. She had fought a good fight here, and it had not been altogether unenjoyable. She owed some gratitude even to this hard, vacant place that stood like a memorial or a trophy. So much of her life had been fought for and won and lost here. Something of this school would always belong to her, something of her to it. She acknowledged it, and now came the leave-taking. In the teacher's room the teachers were chatting and loitering, talking excitedly of where they were going, to the Isle of Man, to Tlandidno, to Yarmouth. They were eager and attached to each other, like comrades leaving a ship. Then it was Mr. Harby's turn to make a speech to Ursula. He looked handsome, with his silver-grey temples and black brows, and his imperturbable male solidity. "'Well,' he said, "'we must say good-bye to Miss Brangwen, and wish her all good fortune for the future. I suppose we shall see her again some time, and hear how she's getting on.' "'Oh, yes,' said Ursula, stammering, blushing, laughing. "'Oh, yes, I shall come and see you.' Then she realised that this sounded too personal, and she felt foolish. "'Miss Schofield suggested these two books,' he said, putting a couple of volumes on the table. "'I hope you will like them.' Ursula, feeling very shy, picked up the books. There was a volume of Swinburne's poetry, and a volume of Meredith's. "'Oh, I shall love them,' she said. "'Thank you very much. Thank you all so much. It is so—' She stuttered to an end and, very red, turned the leaves of the books eagerly, pretending to be taking the first pleasure, but really seeing nothing. Mr. Harby's eyes were twinkling. 
He alone was at his ease, master of the situation. It was pleasing to him to make Ursula the gift, and for once extend good feeling to his teachers. As a rule it was so difficult, each one was so strained in resentment under his rule. "'Yes,' he said, "'we hoped you would like the choice.' He looked with his peculiar, challenging smile for a moment, then returned to his cupboards. Ursula felt very confused. She hugged her books, loving them. And she felt that she loved all the teachers, and Mr. Harby. It was very confusing. At last she was out. She cast one hasty glance over the school buildings, squatting on the asphalt yard in the hot, glistening sun, one look down the well-known road, and turned her back on it all. Something strained in her heart. She was going away. "'Well, good luck,' said the last of the teachers, as she shook hands at the end of the road. "'We'll expect you back some day.' He spoke in irony. She laughed and broke away. She was free. As she sat on the top of the tram in the sunlight, she looked round her with tremendous delight. She had left something which had meant much to her. She would not go to school any more, and do the familiar things. Queer! There was a little pang amid her exultation, of fear, not of regret. Yet how she exulted this morning! She was tremulous with pride and joy. She loved the two books. They were tokens to her, representing the fruit and trophies of her two years which, thank God, were over. To Ursula Brangwen, with best wishes for her future, and in warm memory of the time she spent in St. Philip's School, was written in the headmaster's neat, scrupulous handwriting. She could see the careful hand holding the pen, the thick fingers with tufts of black hair on the back of each one. He had signed, all the teachers had signed. She liked having all their signatures. She felt she loved them all. They were her fellow workers. She carried away from the school a pride she could never lose. She had her place as comrade and sharer in the work of the school. Her fellow teachers had signed to her as one of them. And she was one of all workers. She had put in her tiny brick to the fabric man was building. She had qualified herself as co-builder. Then the day for the home removal came. Ursula rose early to pack up the remaining goods. The carts arrived, lent by her uncle at the marsh, in the lull between hay and corn harvest. The goods roped in the cart, Ursula mounted her bicycle and sped away to Beldover. The house was hers. She entered its clean scrubbed silence. The dining room had been covered with a thick rush matting, hard and of the beautiful, luminous, clean colour of sun-dried reeds. The walls were pale grey, the doors were darker grey. Ursula admired it very much, as the sun came through the large windows, streaming in. She flung open doors and windows to the sunshine. Flowers were bright and shining round the small lawn, which stood above the road, looking over the raw field opposite, which would later be built upon. No one came, so she wandered down the garden at the back of the wall. The eight bells of the church rang the hour. She could hear the many sounds of the town about her. At last the cart was seen coming round the corner. Familiar furniture piled undignified on top. Tom, her brother, and Teresa, marching on foot beside the mass, proud of having walked ten miles or more from the tram terminus. Ursula poured out beer, and the men drank thirstily, by the door. 
A second cart was coming. Her father appeared on his motor-bicycle. There was the staggering transport of furniture up the steps to the little lawn, where it was deposited all pell-mell in the sunshine, very queer and discomforting. Brangwen was a pleasant man to work with, cheerful and easy. Ursula loved deciding him where the heavy things should stand. She watched anxiously the struggle up the steps and through the doorways. Then the big things were in, the carts set off again. Ursula and her father worked away, carrying in all the light things that remained upon the lawn, and putting them in place. Dinner-time came. They ate bread and cheese in the kitchen. "'Well, we're getting on,' said Brangwen, cheerfully. Two more loads arrived. The afternoon passed away in a struggle with the furniture upstairs. Towards five o'clock appeared the last loads, consisting also of Mrs. Brangwen and the younger children, driven by Uncle Fred in the trap. Gudrun had walked with Margaret from the station. The whole family had come. "'There,' said Brangwen, as his wife got down from the cart, "'now we're all here.' "'Aye,' said his wife, pleasantly. And the very brevity, the silence of intimacy between the two, made a home in the hearts of the children, who clustered round, feeling strange in the new place. Everything was at sixes and sevens, but a fire was made in the kitchen, the hearth-rug put down, the kettle set on the hob, and Mrs. Brangwen began towards sunset to prepare the first meal. Ursula and Gudrun were slaving in the bedrooms, candles were rushing about. Then from the kitchen came the smell of ham and eggs and coffee, and in the gaslight the scrambled meal began. The family seemed to huddle together like a little camp in a strange place. Ursula felt a load of responsibility upon her, caring for the half-little ones. The smallest kept near the mother. It was dark, and the children went sleepy but excited to bed. It was a long time before the sound of voices died out. There was a tremendous sense of adventure. In the morning everybody was awake soon after dawn, the children crying, "'When I wakened up, I didn't know where I was.' There were the strange sounds of the town, and the repeated chiming of the big church bells, so much harsher and more insistent than the little bells of Cossethay. They looked through the windows, past the other new red houses, to the wooded hill across the valley. They had all a delightful sense of space and liberation, space and light and air. But gradually all set to work. They were a careless, untidy family. Yet, when once they set about to get the house in order, the thing went with felicity and quickness. By evening the place was roughly established. They would not have a servant to live in the house, only a woman who could go home at night, and they would not even have the woman yet. They wanted to do as they liked in their own home, with no stranger in the midst. End of chapter 14 Read by Tony Foster